We're going to spend some time now studying the Bible together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you don't have a Bible, we've put some under the chairs. You can grab one of those. We'll be on page 858, Luke chapter 3. Uh, we're continuing our series in Luke, Jesus, the early years. Jesus, the early years. We're just kind of seeing the beginning of his ministry. Uh, and after a few weeks in the beginning of Luke, and the beginning of Jesus's ministry, then what we'll do is we'll focus for a little while in the pre-Easter season on feasting and fasting, practicing spiritual rhythms as we prepare our hearts for Easter. And then after Easter, we'll reset to Luke again and continue on through the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, there's special attention to the humanity of Jesus. Um, If you're a Christian, if you've grown up in the Christian West, you're very aware of the divinity of Jesus. We believe in both realities. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is divine. Uh, But Luke is really helpful in helping us to see that Jesus is also truly human. He is someone for us to follow. So we entrust ourselves to him as our hope of salvation. He's our only way to the Father. And yet we also follow him as a model. We see this repeatedly. This week we're going to see, again, John the Baptist, who is preparing the way for Jesus. So we'll see John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, and we're calling the sermon this week, Turn Around. Turn Around. Around. That is the English translation of a religious word, repent. Raise your hand if you've heard the word repent before. Okay, heard the word, that's good. Turn around is one of the simplest ways to translate that word. Turn around. We'll be in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. It's page 858. I want to share a little story from my family background. In the late 60s, my family lived in downtown Detroit. Downtown Detroit in the late 60s. And if you know anything about downtown Detroit, in the late 60s, that was a crazy time to live in downtown Detroit. My family had been visiting some friends uh, outside of town. I can't remember how far away it was, but as they were driving home, uh, their street was blocked. Coming to their neighborhood, they could see smoke, they could hear noise, they could see police. The police said, you can't come down the street. You got to turn around. It's dangerous. Don't go this way. And they had a choice to make, right? We can head into the flames or we can turn around and run to safety. They turned around. They went and stayed with some friends that lived in another neighborhood farther out. They lived six blocks away from the riots when Detroit was being torn to shreds and there was fire and there was destruction everywhere. And so at that point, they had to turn around. They had to go in a different direction. You may not have faced that kind of um, clarity when your neighborhood was on fire, But we all face moments when we are asked to turn around and go a different direction. John the Baptist is saying all human beings have to look at their life and acknowledge we're headed in the wrong direction spiritually and we need to turn around. If we don't, we're headed into destruction. We're headed into something really, really bad. This is the ministry of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. He was getting the Jews ready for Jesus by telling them, that their Jewishness was not enough. Their Jewishness is not enough. It's not enough to save them. The way they were raised is not enough to save them. The home they were born into, as great as that home may be, was not enough to save them. They had to turn around. They had to repent. They had to go in a different direction. So I'm going to read uh, Luke chapter 3. I want to start with verse 2, read through verse 6, and then from there we're going to expand out and read some more this morning. But let's start with verses 2 through 6. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, it was a father-son pair. They often kind of worked together as the son was beginning to take over. So during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. We've already been introduced to Zechariah during the Christmas season. We read some of those stories. So John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance, a washing of turning, to translate that, right? He was having people wash themselves in the water, but that was symbolic of a heart change, a mind change, metanoia, turning around spiritually and heading spiritually in another direction. So he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this is why we call him John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer is often what he's referred to as. Verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh 
shall see the salvation of God. John the Baptist was saying he's making the way for the king to come so that we can all see the salvation of God. His job was to prepare the way, to point us to Jesus. And he said, the way you're going to see God and his salvation is by turning around spiritually, not thinking you can save yourself, but turning and trusting in him instead. I'm going to pray for us and ask Jesus to help us to hear his word and to respond to him in faith. Let me pray. God, we pray that your spirit would be with us, that this would be a supernatural experience where your spirit teaches us, where we hear your word and we delight in it. Help us to love you more than we love ourselves. And God, we pray that that would then bear the good fruits of repentance in which we actually love others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is to turn around. We're headed in one direction, all human beings. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Proverbs says this, chapter 14, chapter 16, says it twice in the middle of the book of Proverbs. We're headed one way. We're supposed to stop and turn around. That's the word repentance. It's helpful, I think, to do a little kind of sidebar on the difference between repentance and penance. Have you ever heard the word penance? Now, in medieval theology, this got a little mixed up, and sometimes we confuse the two. If you've not been in church, not been around, you might mix up those two terms. So penance is the stuff you do to try to, um, depending on how you've been taught, the stuff you do to try to earn your way back into God's good graces, saying it in the most extreme way. That's different than repentance. Repentance is, I surrender. Repentance is the other side of the coin we would call faith. Repentance is I'm turning from self and sin. Faith is I'm turning to Jesus. They're the same thing. You turn around. Can't save myself? Only Jesus can save me. That's repentance. Penance is, man, I got to prove it. I got to earn his love. And so the big question for you this morning is what do you believe about God? Do you believe that if you trust him, he'll save you? He delights in you. He loves you because of the work of Jesus. Or do you believe, man, I got to do more? to get God's attention. He's not really proud of me yet. He's proud of you already by faith in Jesus. If you trust Jesus, he delights in you. He sees you as truly beautiful and righteous and whole. And then out of that restored relationship, that new heart, that changed mind, that new spiritual direction, then we begin to do good works. So it's really important that we would keep these two things distinct. Martin Luther says this, it was actually his first thesis. If you've heard of Martin Luther, started the Protestant Reformation, nailed a bunch of theses on the castle door, on the church door. Hey, I want to have a debate over these issues. Number one, this was number one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. It's a daily turning In Colossians and Ephesians, it's described as putting off and putting on, putting off, putting on. I put off the old man, I put on the new man. I put off my old self, I put on Jesus every day. Now we believe firmly, as John chapter 10 says, that once you've placed your faith in Jesus, nothing, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it includes all the things that make us feel separated like our death and our disease and our abuse and all the things that we go through, we feel separated. says, no, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Nothing can separate you from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. And yet, there's a daily ritual. There's a daily practice. As Luther says, all of life is repentance. All of life is saying, Jesus, I need you. That's why in our worship services, we have a ritual of, Jesus, remind me again where I walked away from you. Remind me again of your sweet grace and forgiveness. You delight in me because of what you've done, not because of what I've done. And so this is a daily, weekly, lifelong pattern of remembering who we are as sons and daughters of God. Now, John the Baptist is just beginning this, right? He's just laying this out. The Jews are kind of freaked out. They're they're shocked by this. And so we're going to see some conflict. Sparks are going to fly in this story as he's laying out this whole concept of turning from their Jewishness and trusting in the salvation of of this Yahweh who is to come in the form of Jesus. And so we have three points. Number one, turn around because Jesus is real. Turn around because Jesus is real. 
Number two, turn around because Jesus will judge. Turn around because Jesus will judge. That's the bad news. Number three, turn around because Jesus brings good fruit. Turn around because Jesus brings good fruit. He delights to work through you and me. We don't deserve it. We're not very skilled at it. And he does incredible things through us. That's quite a privilege. So number one, turn around because Jesus is real. We see this in verses 1 through 3 and then 4 through 6. So I've got 1 through 6 on the screen, but I'm kind of breaking it into two parts. We've got Jesus being historically real and then Jesus being prophetically real. So both of them underline, he's real. This is actually happening. He's breaking into space and time. We've been taught by our culture again and again and again. Let me say this a different way. You've been brainwashed by your culture The Christianity is this floaty world of values and feelings. And then there's science and there's history. Luke blows us out of the water because Luke writes as a historian. Luke writes as a journalist, pointing out the facts again and again. And he says, here's the evidence. Go check it. Here's the evidence. Go cite the sources. Go look at it. Go talk to them. Here they are. This is what happened. It was public. People saw it. You can taste and touch and see. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the biggest and most crazy, awesome, historic thing that's ever happened. And it's the biggest, craziest, most amazing scientific thing that ever happened. It's not how normal history works, and it's not how normal science works. But it's our hope. Jesus is real. So, again, back to the text. Sorry, I'm getting carried away. Um, Sometimes I preach different sermons in the middle of the same sermon, so... uh, Chapter 3, thank you, thank you. (laughs) Chapter 3, starting verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the reign, also of the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. That's when the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Is that enough details for you? He's situating this in history. And this is a cool thing that Luke does again and again in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. Luke gives these very unique terms, right? Most of us, I'm not a detailed person. If I was writing the story, I'd be like, the leader here, the leader there, the leader in the other town. And Luke uses these unique words. You'll see him following people you know, through, the, uh, through the book of Acts. He'll be like, oh, in this town... It was the, the poobah, right? And that's only what they call him there. This other town, it was the chief. And over here, it was, you know, and he's using these very unique technical terms. Why? Because he's actually done his homework. He's actually reporting truth. And this is so important for us to see. Christianity markets itself as actual journalistic truth. It doesn't market itself like every other religion in the world, which is like, no, don't check us on the details, just trust us. Christianity is like, no, don't trust me. Go, go, check. go check the details. Go do some archaeology, and you'll find that this is what the different leaders were called in these different places. You'll find that his story holds up. So he is historically real. Jesus, breaking into space and time, through the ministry of John the Baptist, who happens to be the son of Zechariah, who happened to happen, uh, do this during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Lots of details here. It's also just another aside in different places in the gospel. Some guys say it was the high priesthood of Annas. Some say Caiaphas. Why is that? Well, they were working together. And as we did research, we found that that's pretty common. As one is passing the baton to the other, as the one high priest is getting older, he brings in his son, he starts training him. So they're both kind of functioning as high priest. And so here, Luke is documenting it to that detail. Yeah, both of them. We're doing it together. That's why it makes sense of other places where it says Annas, other places it says Caiaphas. Okay, moving on. Verse 4. All this is happening as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The most common promise of the Old Testament is that God will be with his people. Earlier in the birth narratives, we saw that Jesus would be called Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Isaiah promises again and again, 
prophesies, this is quoting Isaiah, that Yahweh is coming. The Jehovah of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, the creator, the covenant Lord, he's coming. John the Baptist is preparing the way. John the Baptist knows that he's not just a human Messiah, but this is also Yahweh coming. And now we have this reality that as as it evolves in real time, they were figuring it out. As we work through the book of Luke, we'll see like, ah, we know you're that son of David we're looking for, but wait, you're more, and this is freaking us out, right? You're more than just a human king. You're more than just a human champion. This is Yahweh himself come among us. And so we'll see this unfold in real time, but these are the prophecies that are real. These are the prophecies that are unfolding before us that John is proclaiming. And the way he wants them to get ready is by verse 3, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now this is repeated in a lot of different places in the Old Testament that if, if we repent, if we turn, if we turn to God, if we ask him to forgive us, the Old Testament tells us he will. Now there's all kinds of rituals in the Old Testament. We talked about this last week that are set building. There's all kinds of rituals in the Old Testament that are helping the Old Testament people of God tell the story of a God who is absolutely holy and then forgives people through the sacrificial system. And now in the New Testament, we see Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. So we're no longer building that set. We're no longer making those sacrifices because Jesus is our only hope. We're now remembering Jesus day in, day out because he's the fulfillment of all of that. But the story is the same. If you ask God to forgive you, here's the good news. God will forgive you. But if you double down on sin and self, you're saying, God, I don't want you. I'd rather have this. I don't want you. Get away from me, God. The way C.S. Lewis describes hell is hell is the place where God gives people what they want. Where God says, thy thy will be done. You, You don't want me. You can have eternity without me. And so, John is preparing the way, he's building the highway by saying, man, you can't trust in yourself. If you really want to see God, you got to turn and ask God to show himself to you. You got to turn around. Stop doubling down on self and turn and ask God to help you. I have a picture, (coughs) excuse me, of the new highway that we're building right through our neighborhood here. I-14, don't know if you've heard this, it's called the uh, Forts to Ports Highway, right? connecting uh, Fort Bliss, Fort Hood, a bunch of other forts in Georgia, all the way to the ports in the East Coast. Big highway is being built. Interstate, interstate highway system uh, was designed for commerce and also for defense. In the ancient world, similar use for highways, right? If you're going to build an empire, you'd want some highways so that trade can take place. Part of why we have highways, so that we can do business, make money, have a healthy society. We also build it so that we can move tanks around. Same thing in the old ancient world, right? And so in the ancient world, they would build highways. How would they build highways? Well, they would cut down hills and they would fill in valleys. He's literally describing highway building. That's what he's talking about here when he's quoting Isaiah. He says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight. Rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So he's using the analogy of highway building, right? We need a place to drive our cars or chariots or donkeys or, you know, whatever the right metaphor is. But we need a safe place to move traffic. And so we got to fill in the potholes. We got to cut down the stumps, keep it maybe smaller for us, right? Valleys and mountains, hills. And he's saying, we got to build this highway. How do, we, how do we actually build the highway, though? What do we do? Repent. We turn around. We stop looking inward, and we look up. God, save me. That's how we build the highway. That's, that's when Yahweh rolls into town. When we, we lay out the asphalt of humility and repentance, the open hands of faith. Jesus, I need you. And John the Baptist is preparing the way so that people can see God. They're going to see God by saying, I I can't do this. I I need God. As we get ourselves out of the way, as we repent, as we turn, we turn around spiritually because Jesus is real and because he is present. 
So two applications of this to repent. Uh, Number one, if you've never repented at all, if you've never recognized that you're a sinner and you're mortal, right? Like you can't live forever apart from God and you are spiritually separated from God. If you haven't laid that out before God before, you can simply lay that out in prayer to him. You can say, God, I'm weak and I need a champion, a a resurrection from the dead champion, a God of the universe champion, and I'm, I'm sinful. I've broken your law. I haven't loved people the way I should. I haven't loved my neighbors well. I haven't stood up for righteousness the way you've called me to. I need you to forgive me, change me, rework, rewire my heart so that I would look more like you. Save me. If you just ask him to, he will. If you turn around from salvation through money, self, all the other things that we think will save us, good health, science, intelligence, respect, relationships, all those things that we think will save, let go of those and say, I'm turning around, I'm trusting in you, God. I need you. Will you save me? That's how you begin a relationship with God. If, if you're doing that right now, if you're if your eyes are being opened spiritually by the Holy Spirit right now to that reality and you're, and you're asking him to come in, he will come in. He will grab hold of you. He will save you. You're being saved into a community, into a family. So I need you to tell the friend that you've come to church with. I need you to talk to me, talk to someone. We have prayer leaders afterwards. Talk to someone about that so that we begin helping you to walk with Jesus. Now, the other thing is if... You've been walking with Jesus for a long time. I want to remind you of what Martin Luther says. All of life is repentance. Every day. Take off the old man, put on the new man. Take off Father Adam, put on Jesus. We're in him. He's our only hope. It's daily. It's moment by moment. doesn't mean you lose your salvation every day. What it means is you just have to continue to turn to him every day. Turn back to him. Turn back to him. It's like the flowers that turn to the sun. Continue to turn back to Jesus. Continue to trust in him because he's real. He's realer than everything else going on in the news. He's realer. Can I say realer? That's a bad way to talk, isn't it? I'm just going to say it anyway. He's realer than social media. He's more real than everything that's freaking you out and keeping you up at night. He's more real than your cancer. He's more real than the divorce. He's closer than your loneliness. He's more real than your empty bank account. He's our only hope. And his closeness and his realness doesn't mean those things don't matter. But you've got to settle things with him first. Turn around. The second thing that we see, now we get to the tough stuff. Oh, I didn't turn on my timer. Whoops. Um, Turn around because Jesus is judge. Turn around because Jesus is judge. This is the bad news. It's a good news, bad news thing. The gospel, people are always talking about it. It's good news and bad news. The bad news is we've sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We're separated from him. There's a problem. Admitting we have a problem, right? First of the 12 steps. That's the bad news. And Jesus is judge. The good news is he starts as savior. He's coming back as judge. We're living in the time of salvation. We're living in the long patience of God, as Peter described. He is patiently waiting for us to turn around and trust him. But there is actual motivation that he's a judge. Now, our church personality and my preaching personality is one to motivate us by the sweet grace of God. Sometimes, though, the Bible motivates us by the terrifying judgment of God. And so I would be wrong to not read and teach what is here. So... On the one hand, I want to defend, say, hey, we're not always like this. First time here, we, we don't always treat, uh, preach fire and brimstone, right? I want to, like, apologize for it. And then I remember, no, the Holy Spirit has you here today to hear this message. So he says this in verse 7. We're going to be in 7 through 9 and then jump over to 15 through 18. 7 through 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So, uh, again, not my style of ministry. John the Baptist, a little different. When you come in, I'm typically going to be like, hey, I'm so glad you're here. John the Baptist would be like, hey, snake, what are you doing here? (laughs) 
He goes on in verse 8. He says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What's he saying there? Something very specific to Jewishness, but it's also universal to us that are Gentiles. Don't, don't tell me about where you came from. I, I don't want to hear about the Christian camp you went to. I don't want to hear about your Christian parents. I don't want to hear about what you did last year. Do you trust God or not? And one of the tests for an act of faith in Jesus is that we would bear good fruit. The scripture doesn't hide from this. If there's no fruit in our life, it doesn't mean we've become unsaved. It doesn't mean there's no way we are saved, but it definitely means we should be worried. We should definitely be worried. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Show life in keeping with salvation. That's what he's challenging. And he's saying specifically to them, I think he knows some of them. He's saying specifically to them, I'm really worried that you're trusting in the reality that you're a part of this tribe that is the chosen people of God. So maybe I could say this to you of like, you're at church, you call yourself a Christian, you live in a Christian nation of some sort, don't trust in that. Only trust in Jesus. Only trust in this God who reveals himself in Jesus. Repent from self and trust in him. So he says, you snakes, who warned you to flee? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't say Abraham's our father. God can raise up stones if he wants. Now in Galatians and Romans, this is worked out. It's not salvation by family, it's salvation by faith, active faith in Jesus. Verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus reiterates this in the Gospel of John. We have a loving God who will prune us and a loving God who will throw away branches that are not bearing fruit. So that's 7 through 9. Let's jump down to 15 through 18. We'll come back to the fruit metaphor in the third point. Starting in verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That chaff is the husk of the wheat. Uh, so if you ever eat oranges, it's like the uh, orange peel he will burn, but the orange is good, right? The banana peel will be burned, but the banana is good, or maybe mulched, right? maybe not. Um, he's saying there's going to be a separation. There's the fruit, and then there's everything else. And God wants the fruit, the fruit of love and justice and mercy, good works. He's going to give very specific things here. And so he's saying that Jesus is judge. Jesus is the judge who is ready to destroy evil. Now, John the Baptist, again, is discovering this in real time. He knows this is who God is. He knows this is who Yahweh is. He knows this is the work of Messiah because it's been prophesied. And so the New Testament experiencers and writers were, were living this, oh, he's coming patiently to save He's coming back in the future to destroy evil. So Revelation, our book at the end of our New Testament, says Jesus is coming back to destroy evil. It says the word of God will come from his mouth like a sword, that his thighs are covered in blood. It's terrifying. And so we have Jesus the judge, and in the reality we're living in right now is Jesus the patient Savior. who's like, okay, I came first to give my life for you. And that's in defense of my ministry. That's why our ministry is marked by, he loves you. He died for you. And we're always going to lead with that. But, but we don't want to leave out. He's coming back to judge the quick and the dead. He's coming back to separate good from evil. That day is coming. Judgment is coming. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Isn't that ironic? John's scaring them to death. And it says here he's preaching good news. With many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. 
It's a beautiful irony. When the Apostle Paul is in prison and he's writing his final letter, 2 Timothy, last thing he writes before he dies, this beautiful quote about how Paul isn't changed, but the Word of God cannot be changed. It's one of my favorite quotes because we don't know what our life promises us. We don't know which direction politics, civilization, the future is going. We just know that Jesus is our only hope. And Jesus may give us more sweet times, or he may give us more time in prison. But we know either way, the word of God can never be put in prison. John the Baptist knew this. He actually questioned it at points, just like you and I would. Later on, when he's in prison, he sends in Luke chapter 7. We're going to come back to it in several weeks. He sends some representatives to Jesus like, um, are you actually the Christ? Because I'm in prison. And Jesus tells him, quote, quote to him, Isaiah, all the good things that are happening. It's really interesting. He leaves out the part in Isaiah that prophesies that prisoners will be set free. He's like, I'm it, man. This is my translation of what Jesus said. I'm fulfilling the prophecies. I am the Savior. I'm doing all these things. But you're not getting out of prison, John. You're not going to get out of prison. But you can still trust me. We don't know the story for our life. We just know that we can trust Jesus, and it's going to be okay. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So we turn around because Jesus is judge. He really is judge. Sin really is horrible. I want to reread this one part that's very uncool and very unpopular in our culture. It says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire in the Old Testament is repeatedly used as a purifying element, right? Um, they would smelt gold, right? They would melt it down and separate the good from the bad and purify metals. And so this is a pro, uh, process of purification. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. It seems like in the 80s, we sang lots of songs about this. Anybody my age or older, you remember this in the 80s? There was a lot of like, refiner's fire, right? Like there's all kinds of songs about this. We don't sing about the fire as much anymore. Um, Maybe we should go back to that. Chris, you could write some with a better tune wherever you are still. (laughs) But there's this refining, purifying element of the fire. So Jesus is coming as God, as Yahweh, to baptize with the Holy Spirit, with power, with with a real spiritual reality. So he's like, I'm just splashing you in water and getting you to admit that you need need God, right? This is just a baptism of repentance, your hearts for forgiveness. And later on in in 1 Peter, Peter says, even Christian baptism, it's not really the water that saves you. It's a pledge of your heart to God. That's, That's the salvation is in your heart directed to God. Salvation is in your turning to him, right? But he's saying God is going to do this supernatural work with Holy Spirit and fire. And then he goes on with the scary stuff. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. So they would literally, with a pitchfork, lift the wheat into the air so that the wind would separate it, right? So the husk was like a dry paper that would which kind of fall off and break off, right? Like imagine eating uh, sunflower seeds and how you have to crack them with your teeth and separate the kernel from the husk. Well, with wheat, all you have to do is like bang it and throw it in the air, and it kind of separates because the husk is so papery and light. And so the kernels, the grains, the fruit of the wheat is separated from the husk, and this is done with a pitchfork, a winnowing fork, right? And so that's what is used a lot in the Old Testament. So this is an analogy that, that they understand. I mean, it would be similar to him saying, he's coming and he's going to crack those sunflower seeds, right? Like, so it's this kind of violent action, but it was a common everyday thing. Like, they just, they understood it. They're separating the good from the bad. It's going to be burned up. Psalm 1 talks about this as well, how the good and the bad are separated. And the wicked are like chaff. That's the, the paper, the husk. And so he's saying, this is going to happen. The chaff, the paper, the husk of the fruit will be burned up with an unquenchable fire. This is the unpopular doctrine of hell. It's the most horrible thing that Christians believe. And just because it's horrible doesn't mean it's not true. So again, I make sense of this by by thinking of C.S. Lewis, who I think has kind of worked this out in a way that's helpful. We we go to hell because we want to go to hell. We've said, I'd, I'd rather burn than submit to God. And that's how my heart can make sense of it. But it's still horrible. 
right? Like I'm offering this, oh, that makes it a little better. It's still horrible. It's terrifying. And it should motivate us. Again, I don't think this is our primary motivator. I don't think the judgment of God is the thing that motivates it, motivates us, but, but it is a thing that motivates us. Jesus will judge evil. Hell is horrible. Another quote I like about hell is from Tim Keller. He had a sophisticated New York person ask him, you don't really believe in a literal hell, do you? And he was like, oh, no, no, I, I think it's much worse than literal. <laughs> much, much worse. Another analogy that is helpful to me is it's like having a doctor not tell us about the cancer because it's horrible. Cancer is horrible, but you want your doctor to tell you about it. It's going to motivate you to turn, to walk in a different direction. Is there a sin in your life that you're nurturing because it feels good in the short term? I want you to know that it wages war on your soul. Uh, one of my favorite passages is in 1 Peter 2.11, where Peter urges us as believers to abstain from the passions of our flesh because they wage war against our soul. And so typically, when you sin, it tastes good or it feels good in the moment. And Christians that say otherwise are often lying to you. So I want to be honest about that. But there's a deeper reality that it is waging war against your soul. There are a lot of poisons that taste good. And so we don't say, well, it tastes good, so it's worth it. No, it's poisoning you. It is destroying you. And so as God defines sin, breaking the Ten Commandments, violating the morals of the New Testament, as God defines sin, those things are destructive. And he warns you to turn from them. You need his help to turn. You need his forgiveness but turn, because those things are destructive. I grabbed a picture of a, a lady with a pet tiger. There's a story a few years ago uh, about a, a guy somewhere in South America. I think it was Mexico, maybe Central America. Um, but a guy that had a pet tiger. Um, he actually worked for a butcher shop. So he had plenty of raw meat to feed the pet tiger. And he fed it, kept it in a cage. It was cute and small, got bigger and bigger. And guess what? Yeah, it killed him. And so it's a beautiful analogy for sin. And I know y'all tell me afterwards, well, some tigers wouldn't do that. Yeah, 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 that's fine. (laughs) It's still a good story, okay? And with sin, it absolutely will eat you. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Um, There's this great song. Where is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Chris was just showing me this new rock band. Um, And I don't know if the rest of their music is okay, so I'm not going to tell you their name. But here's, here's a quote from their song. There's no rock bottom. There's no rock bottom. It's just a matter of when you're going to give up digging. That's a great line. It's helpful to think about a rock bottom. Rock bottom, by definition, the way we talk about it in the recovery world, is it's when you give up. And that's kind of what he's saying. Like, there's no actual rock bottom. You could keep digging. That's the irrationality of sin. You will keep going. The sin won't stop you. The sin will just ask you for more. Only Jesus in his grace will say, that's enough. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I'll I'll give you rest. So rock bottom is when you stop digging. Turn around because Jesus will judge. Okay, last point. Turn around because Jesus brings good fruit. Turn around because Jesus brings good fruit. So we'll read verses 7 through 14. So I've kind of jumped around a little bit because there's some, some overlapping ideas here. So back in verse 7, he said, Therefore, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So here we have simultaneously this New Testament paradox where God is saying, don't say that you can do this by your own power. And then he's also saying, do this. Do good things. Bear the fruits of good works. Bear the fruits of repentance. So the New Testament commands us to do good, and then it tells us you cannot do good on your own. You've got to turn and desperately ask God to save you. And then you'll, you'll start doing good things. 
you'll, you'll kind of stumble forward, taking baby steps. And just like our three-year-old baby, when she falls down, we're not like, you stupid idiot, you fell down. I hate you, I'm done with you. No, we're like, come on, come on, get up. And that's the same way in the spiritual life. The fruits of repentance are turning and trusting in Jesus. We're going to fall. You're going you're to do stupid stuff again that you regret. Jesus forgives you. You get back up. The fruits of repentance is you keep following him. And you love him. You love other people. You do righteous acts out of the overflow of his grace and kindness to you. So he says, bear these good fruits. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There will be a judgment. Verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? If it's not enough to be a Jew, what are we supposed to do? If it's not enough to be born in the right family, to be the right race, to be in the right tribe, what's our option? He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Now, we don't wear tunics, do we? Whoever has two shirts, share with somebody that doesn't have a shirt. Whoever has two coats, share with somebody that doesn't have a coat. Whoever has food is to do the same kind of thing. If you've got lots of food and this guy's starving, give him some food. It's pretty simple. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized. They said, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect more, no more than you are authorized to do. This is really interesting because the Jews of the time thought this is the greatest evil you could possibly commit is to even be a tax collector. He's saying, just don't be corrupt. Don't extort. They were known for extortion. Stop the extortion. Don't be corrupt. Verse 13, and he said to him, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Verse 14, soldiers asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. My summary of this is, is do justice and love mercy. Do justice and love mercy. Now, to be clear, in Micah 6, 8, those are slightly different technical terms than what we think of as the Old Testament terms for justice and mercy. But that's the big idea here. Do the right thing. Don't be corrupt. Be just. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. But also be merciful, because God has been merciful to you. Now, there's a million qualifications. The New Testament has Helpful qualifications. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, hey, if someone continues to not work, well, don't keep feeding them, right? Like there, is, there are some, some things you work out in real time, but our posture should be a general posture of generosity. Like, oh, I'm, I'm going to help people in need. And then you start kind of walking with someone, and you're like, I don't, I don't want to support this negative habit, so I'm, I may have to pull back, right? You don't really have to overthink it. You don't have to have a PhD in economics or how to help people to be able to help people. You can just help people. And then you can be like, oh, that didn't work. Let's try something different, right? Like we, we can just try stuff to help people. So we want to guard ourselves against perfectionism. Guard ourselves against a perfectionism, a perfectionism of if I ever help people in the wrong way, that ruins everything. But we also want to guard ourselves against a utopianism. That, ah, Jesus is commanding there shall no longer ever be any suffering anywhere, anytime. Well, not really what John the Baptist or later Jesus is saying either. Just have a general posture of justice and mercy. Do justice. Maintain a just society. And then also be merciful, right? Old Testament pattern was tithing and gleaning. You always set aside some of your fruit, some of your money to help the ministry of the word. We ask you to give some of that here to the church to broadcast the word and also to help the poor. That was just a common thing. And then gleaning. They would set up their farms and they would say, hey, on the edge of your farm, leave some for the poor people to come and gather. Those that are starving, they can come and grab some of their own fruit. They weren't like boxing it up and delivering it to the poor people's homes. They were saying, come, you can, you can come grab some of it, right? So there was this kind of like fringe giving that was just a regular rhythm. Are you setting aside some of the fringe of your life, some of the overflow of your life to give and be merciful to others? That's what's commanded again and again in the New Testament. But again, even here, it's really simple. Oh, you got something? He doesn't have something? Share. Help him out. Just be generous. Be kind. You have power. You have trust. Don't abuse it. Don't extort. Don't be corrupt. Um, I grabbed a picture of a fruit tree 
And we just want to reiterate the New Testament teaching that the fruit we bear is based on the root that we've been given. We're born in Adam, and we have rotten roots. Repentance is the work by which our roots are switched out. Repentance is saying, I'm not going to any longer try to feed on the rot right here, but I'm going to tap my roots down into the pure stream of God himself. Psalm 1, Jeremiah 17, uses this analogy repeatedly throughout the scripture. Jesus comes back to it. John the Baptist here is coming back to it. What are you tapping your roots into? Are you tapping your roots into rot, self, idols, or are you tapping your roots down into God himself? You're trusting in this Yahweh who's coming down the highway of salvation. And so if you have good roots, then you'll have good fruit. So he says, bear fruits that are in keeping with repentance. Repentance is turning from self, turning to God. It's faith in Jesus. Trusting him, not trusting you. Trusting in a God who gave himself on the cross to bear the full wrath of God. He died for us. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. As I've talked about the model of Luke. He's the perfect human. We'll see that more and more in the next few chapters. He's the better Adam. And he's the one that rose from the dead, defeating sin and death once and for all. Trust in him, don't trust in yourself. And as you do that, then you're putting your roots into a new reality. You're going to start bearing fruit. So uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 describes it this way. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I'm going to read that first part again. There's no way we can bear these fruits apart from Jesus bringing these fruits into our heart and soul. Let me read it again. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. That's the repentance, right? So repentance and faith are kind of like positive and negative. Faith is like, help me, Jesus. Repentance is like, not myself, turning from sin and self. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Paul's like, God specifically designed this so that you can't brag. Paul repeatedly, whenever he uses the word bragging positively, he says, the only way I'll brag or boast is in the Lord. If I'm going to boast about anything, it's Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at what he did. So we can't boast in our works. And then verse 10, this is really important. This is the fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 10, for we are God's workmanship. Greek word is poema. You're God's poetry. You're God's painting. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This God who is so sovereign over all of history that he's actually designed and prepared the good works for you to do. Like, well, what should I do? John the Baptist lays out, here's here's what it looks like. Don't be corrupt, right? Be just. Love justice. You got something somebody else's need? Help them out. Be merciful. This is what it looks like. But getting down to your life, you can have this incredible trust that God has prepared your good works in advance. So you can talk to him about it. So I don't need you to call me each week and like, Dave, should I do this? Should I do that? What color socks should I wear today, Dave? No, you can, you can pray and ask the Lord. He has prepared good works in advance for you to do. Is it just? Is it merciful? Go for it. Pray. He's prepared good works in advance for you to do. He will lead you. You're walking in a relationship with God. We do the next good thing. We do the next right thing. We don't have to have it all figured out. But we live out this grace that we've been given. I need to wrap up here. Um, I mentioned already uh, the direction of John himself. As we talk about turning around and changing directions, I think it's important to note the, the time we're in. Often we'll do a whole sermon on this focus, but uh, Martin Luther King, Day is Tomorrow, uh, where we remember his fight against racism in our country. And personally and corporately, we turn and say, that's not good. Loving people is good. Being racist is bad. We want to continue to say that. What's a work that would be befitting a fruit that would be in keeping with repentance of that reality, I'd say you guys are doing it, and it's beautiful. As I look out at your faces, building a multi-ethnic church where we say, you know what, we've come from 50 different tribes and races, 
and we're all uh, worshiping the same Jesus together. It's a beautiful work in keeping with repentance. This is a beautiful thing that God is building here at Grace Bible Church. And we boast in Jesus building it. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we're building on the foundation of repentance. We're saying, man, I'm not saved because of my last name or what neighborhood I grew up in. I'm saved because of Jesus. So multi-ethnic church is a fruit of repentance. We're saying repentance is the bottom line, not our culture. We're always trying to make our culture secondary to Jesus. Do we have a culture? Yeah. Do we have different kinds of foods and languages and habits and preferences? Yes. But as we row in the same direction of the same morality, the same justice, the same mercy, because of the same Savior, those are fruits in keeping with repentance. January, we also remember sanctity of life. The scourge of abortion. Actually, the most racist injustice in our society. And we want to say, again, that's wrong. (laughs) That's a form of, again, like racism, not recognizing the Imago Dei, not recognizing the image of God in human beings in the womb, not honoring that. Typically, because of fear, money, and inconvenience. And so we want to say, we're going to be a people who are going to bear the fruits of repentance, our partnerships with Hope Pregnancy Center, our partnerships with Foster Love Bell County, where we say, you know what? Not only do we want to say, don't abort that baby, we want to come alongside people and help them, help them figure it out as a family. Jesus gave grace to us. We're going to show grace to others. We're going to help raise these children. And then we want to remember what Jesus told John the Baptist. As we bear these fruits in keeping with repentance, as we turn around from self and we trust in Jesus, we can remember that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. But we can also remember that there are times in our story where we may be like in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist in jail, about to have our head chopped off. And we can ask Jesus, this is scary. Are you really the one? And he will reassure you again. Go back and read all the prophecies in Isaiah. I'm the one. You can trust me. Even if your head's chopped off. You can trust me. It's going to be okay. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Let me pray. God, thank you that you love us, that you've saved us, and that you are renewing us. We pray that you'd help us to walk with you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.